0: As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, you've promised to give gifts so that we can be blessed and bless one another and help one another. And so I pray that you would manifest, Holy Spirit, your presence among us even now. So we would be able to hear this word and understand it. And it would be that which um, blesses in the richest and deepest sense of that word so that you may be glorified, so that we would turn back to you and give you thanks. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Second Timothy in chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, please. I want to read verses 1 through 14. Second Timothy chapter 1, please. Before I read, just a quick word that I forgot to announce during the announcement time. And that is, as you leave this service to go to Sunday school, that one adult class will meet up here in room 17, another one in room 16. But if you need to get to the, what we reverently call the old section, if you need to get to the old section, you can't go through the gym. Because there's a class there. The college class is meeting in the gym now. And so... Those doors will be closed and if you'll open those doors, then you'll be looking at about 125 college students in the eye and you'll feel awkward uh, and, uh, and interrupting. So, so don't go through there, just you know, travel around the, the corner and all that. So there you go, That'll, that's just some helpful word there. 2 Timothy chapter 1, hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus... To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, last week, uh, we finished our consideration, at least for now, of the first letter that this Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, this one he calls his beloved child. So we finished that last week, I thought. Frankly, it might just be useful to move right into this, this second letter. Uh, I won't take it up in the same detail as I did first Timothy because we've already covered many of the themes that are here. But we'll take it up in reasonably good detail and, um, and, and, and move our way through this second uh, epistle, this second letter that Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy. Uh, there's a few years between the writing of First Timothy and Second and, and Timothy, but, but the themes are quite the same. Paul is still concerned about the preservation of the gospel. In fact, this theme, just like in First Timothy, this theme, this writing to, to Timothy, this pastor in Ephesus. Is, is is that the gospel should be guarded. I read here in, 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 in chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So if you were here as we worked our way through First Timothy, you'll find very similar language. You remember in that epistle, the key there was found in chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul writes to Timothy, speaking to him as this pastor, saying he's going to, to, to now instruct him how how he's to to conduct himself, how the church is to live as the church, as the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar in support of the truth. And so we found in 1 Timothy that much of what was directed to Timothy, what was much directed through him then to the church, was that they needed to, to watch over this gospel, to protect it from false teachers, to, to live it out, to believe it, to proclaim it and so forth. And so still very much the same kind of theme here. Paul writing to Timothy saying, you need to guard this gospel. That is the gospel which you teach and preach, this gospel which, which is to be in the church in Ephesus is to be the exact same gospel that Paul taught, that the apostles had handed down, the apostles had gotten from the life and the teaching of Jesus and the scriptures and so forth. So, so all of that, uh, very much the same. In fact, as we find, as we get into 2 Timothy, Paul's going to tell Timothy to, to suffer for this gospel. Simply to guard it, but in a sense, he guards it with his very life. It's going to cause this gospel will in the life of Timothy suffering. And so he says, like a good soldier, you need to suffer for the gospel. And then in chapter 3. By way of encouragement to Timothy. He's going to say continue living this gospel. Continue in the life in which you've been taught. So, so don't neglect it. Don't abandon it. Even though you're guarding it. And that's resulting in suffering. You still need to continue in it. And then finally his swan song. As he leaves in chapter 4. He says to Timothy. Make sure you preach this gospel whether it's in season or out of season. In other words, it's always the season. It's always right to be preaching this gospel. So you can see a similar kind of idea, Paul writing in that sense, because Paul is in what historians call his second Roman imprisonment. If you're a reader of the Bible and you get to the book of Acts in the New Testament, you find that's kind of the, kind of the history book of the New Testament church from the ascension of Jesus to, and Luke ends, with Paul in, under house arrest in Rome uh, in what we call his first imprisonment in Rome. It was in the early 60s, if you will. Uh, Paul being imprisoned in Rome. That's where we leave him. He's under house arrest, so, so people are able to come and go and see him and all of that. Uh, it appears as if soon after he's released Upon his release, he writes 1 Timothy, and he also writes a similar kind of letter to Titus, another young pastor who happens to be in a place called Crete. And then Paul is re-arrested in Rome, and this time it appears as if he's not under house arrest, but in what we would refer to as a real prison, really, really changed. You can see that even as he writes to Timothy because it's from this second imprisonment that he writes to Timothy. Notice in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. There's sort of a double meaning there kind of introducing this fact that he is in fact in prison and he's really the Lord's prisoner which is a kind of way of scoffing a bit at his real captors, at, the, at his real um, uh, wardens if you will. He's saying, I'm really, the, the Lord has me here that you guys are just here but but I'm here for a reason and, and the Lord is sovereign so I'm really his prisoner. But you'll notice then in verse, um, verse uh, uh, 16 of this same chapter, Paul says, "By the Lord, grant mercy. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesphorus, for he had, uh, he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains." In other words, as Paul was being chained, Paul in this prison, he said, "Here is one who wasn't ashamed of me. He came to me even in, while I was in this condition and risked being my friend, if you will, and came to me, and no doubt, no doubt." Uh, Uh, Helped in verse 17. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. In other words, I wasn't so readily available this time as I was when I was under house arrest. He had to really look for me. So he found me. And so may the Lord grant him mercy. And then in chapter 2, in in verse 9, Paul puts it like this. verse 8, he says, Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. So that's where we find him. Tradition tells us, good tradition tells us, that he was under a sentence of death in this particular imprisonment. In fact, was soon thereafter taken out and beheaded. You get the impression too that Paul had a sense of that. He knew that in chapter 4 and verse 6 as he's ending this letter to Timothy. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. So not only do we have all of what we have in the scripture here, just this sense of this being the word of God and the knowledge that it is God's word to us, but we have this other thing going on where we realize that this was Paul's last letter and that he knew that. It's always fascinating to read these last things that people think that people, people say. I must confess that when I pick up a biography, I almost always start with how the person died. That may sound morbid to you, but I, I want to know the events around that person's death to even know if I'm going to be interested in how this person lived. So if there's something about his death or her death in there, I read that, I find that first, because I want to know that the person is still alive. Well, frankly, usually it isn't that interesting yet. And so, I think it really mess up between the time of that biography and the next one, you know, the, the real one that comes out, and so I don't want to waste my time. So I want to make sure, I don't know how, and what are they saying then? How does that impact their death about what they say? So anyway, this, this kind of grabs me here, quite personally, it's irrelevant to you, I suppose, but it grabs me here. To say this is it, this is this last letter. What's what's on Paul's mind and what's gratifying because of who he is. What's consistent with his life is what's on Paul's mind as he faces death is exactly what's on Paul's mind and has been on Paul's mind all the time. Which is the gospel which is the truth concerning Jesus. That's what compels him even still to write to Timothy. Timothy I know that things don't look well for me it looks as if I'm going to die I'm in prison but, but here's what I want you to do I want you to guard the gospel and even if it brings suffering to your life I want to want you to suffer for the gospel and, and, and even in the context of suffering for the gospel don't get up continue to live out what you've been taught and continue then to preach what you know to be true so don't let any of these circumstances any of this suffering any even of my suffering. Paul would say, don't be ashamed of it, but but continue to live it out. What's important to Paul at the end of his life was what was important to him at the beginning, in the middle of his life. And what was important in the middle was important in the beginning. And that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, with the same affection that he's always had for him. He calls him his beloved son. He says, I remember your tears, meaning when we parted the last time. I remember how difficult the parting was for you and for us. I remember that, Timothy. I know that I pray for you. I I thank God for you every time I think of you. In fact, I can't wait to see you. I long to see you because you're one of the people in my life. That brings joy to me every time I see you. And so just thinking about seeing you brings me joy. I don't know if you have people like that in your life that every time you see them, it just makes you happy. That was the kind of person this was for Paul when he saw Timothy, when he thought about seeing him. He was filled with joy. And so all of that's still there with him. But but, but he knows Timothy. He knows the situation in which Timothy has been called to be a pastor in Ephesus, a difficult place, as we mentioned before, in the shadow of this great pagan temple. And he knows that in the midst of the church in Ephesus, there are those who are teaching that which isn't true, and and they're teaching that which isn't true confidently. In other words, they really believe it. They really think they're right. They're really assertive about this. You get this sense, too, that they're impressive kinds of people. And so all of this exists in, in, in Timothy's church, and so Paul says, I know what's going on there, but maintain, continue to guard the gospel. He knows Timothy's personality, his, how he's constructed really. He gets you get the sense from his first letter, and even in this one, that Timothy isn't the most uh, outgoing kind of a guy. He's uh, somewhat timid. Uh, he seems to be having significant stomach issues. And Paul writes to him very fatherly and tell him, take a little wine for your stomach so you can feel better. So he gets all of that, tells Timothy, don't let them despise your youth. I know you're too young for this, or it appears as if you're too young for this. People think you're too young for this. The false teachers may be older and more experienced than you, but Timothy, still hang in there. So all of this is going on. And so he opens his letter to this one he calls his son in the faith with these words. It says, fan into flame the gift of God. Notice, verse 6. He says, for this reason. Reason? Yes, the reason that, Timothy, I know you and I know your faith. and I rejoice in the fact that, that your grandmother knew the Lord and your mother knew the Lord and they, they taught you from when the time you were a little one. Old Testament scriptures and then no doubt the truth of the gospel is that came to bear on their lives and they believed it. Timothy, you've been, you've been raised in this. And I know your faith is sincere. And I know, Timothy, too, that you've been gifted by God. And the reason that Paul knows that is that he was there when Timothy was called to be this pastor. And, and Paul says, I, I laid hands on you. The elders were there. I laid hands on you. There was this prophetic word spoken, that is, this word of God that came through Paul Paul was convinced it was from God for Timothy concerning this gift. And so for this reason, he says, I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Now, why is it that Paul found it necessary to start this second letter there. Again, no doubt, because he knew Timothy, he knew the situation Timothy was in. And you get the sense that he understood that there might be in Timothy, because of all that was going on, um, uh, an inclination to neglect this calling and gift. In fact, in the first chapter, in the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter four in verse 14, Paul says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. In other words, Paul knew Timothy. And so he says, Timothy, if you're going to continue on, and you must. You must. There isn't any choice for us, Timothy. This gospel must be guarded. It must be lived out. It must be believed. It must be shared. There isn't any other hope for any of us. So Timothy, no matter what happens, you've got to hang on to this. And Timothy, I know you, and I know your inclination. Your inclination is to not follow. Your inclination is to neglect the gifts. So you need to rekindle it. Now that doesn't mean Timothy wasn't doing anything at all with it. We, we get the sense that he really was. He was preaching and teaching and doing all of that. We, we, Paul instructs him to go and you get the sense that he was confrontational where he needed to be and pastoral where he needed to be and all of that and follow Timothy, Paul, Paul's instructions. But, but still rekindle. In other words, Timothy, realize that a constant practice in your life is this stoking of this fire. This gifted Paul spoke of these of gifts that God gives to us. I read two of the primary passages there are really four primary passages in the New Testament about such gifts. The first one I read this morning was from Ephesians and chapter four, where the scripture tells us that Paul that Christ gives gifts to the church. They sound a bit more like what we might call offices or positions in the church uh, if you will. He speaks of Christ and he said he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists the shepherds or pastors and teachers. And so you get the sense that 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 in some way Timothy would have fallen into this gift list as you, if you will as, as, as probably a, a, a pastor, a shepherd a, a teacher, perhaps even an evangelist and, and, and he fits in those and Paul says this is who you are, this is the gift that you have. And he says that the, the reason you have this gift, Timothy, isn't for you to glory in it. It isn't for you to bask in it. But it's so that uh, the saints, that is believers, can be equipped to serve one another. To build up the body of Christ. So that we can have unity in faith. And the knowledge of the Son of God. And come to maturity That is the full stature of Christ, in other words, so that we, as believers in Christ, can be conformed to the image of Christ. uh, Timothy, this is why you have this gift. And so if you neglect it, look at what's going to happen. Better yet, look at what isn't going to happen. The church isn't going to mature. So, Timothy, if your church is going to mature, you need to get on with it. Don't let this die. Don't neglect it. Rekindle it. Stoke it all the time. Then I read from Peter's first letter, First Peter in chapter four. And the First Peter chapter four, Peter writes also of as, as as of these gifts. Verse 10 says, as each has received a gift. You get the sense that, that each has received a gift. Not just Timothy, but 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 each of us, in some sense, has been gifted by God so that God would be glorified by our loving and serving one another. Paul writes of these gifts as well in Romans, in chapter 12. In Romans 12, the emphasis there is, for instance, he writes verse 4, for as in, let me start with verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with Sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. In other words, Paul is saying, this is how we operate, this is how we function. We've been given different gifts by God to serve one another, now use those gifts we don't all function the same way that shouldn't surprise us at all we should have been able to observe that one we're different than each other but yet we're still unified we're still one together in fact that point is emphasized in probably the most i don't know well-known passages of all these gifts that we have laid out in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12 here paul begins by saying verse 1 now concerning spiritual gifts, really the word gift isn't in there. It's supplied by other sentences in that particular expression. You could, you could simply uh, title this by Paul's line saying, Now concerning spiritual persons or spiritual ones or spirituals, concerning these things which are of the Holy Spirit. And it begins by saying that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, that's how it's by this work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to even believe. It's mysterious to us, but we get it. We understand that there's nothing different inherently in each one of us that causes us to believe while someone else doesn't believe. If that were true, then we would boast in ourselves in some way. So he comes right out and says it. And there is some sense in which the Holy Spirit has enabled us to believe, to say that Jesus is is Lord. And as I mentioned some moments ago, not only to say it with our lips, we can form those words, but really say it and believe it. Say, yes, that means everything, that he's the Lord. So he says, okay, he's the Lord. Now, this Holy Spirit then, who enables us to say that Jesus is Lord, enables us to follow Jesus as Lord. Jesus calls us to love one another, commands us to love one another. Thus, he fills us with his spirit, and he gives gifts to us to enable us to do that. So, verse 4 there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit. And so, these gifts may make us different, if you will, in the sense that we function differently amongst each other, but really, they're to bring us together. We're to recognize that it's still the same Holy Spirit. And so, when a gift is seen and given, and all of that, and someone is blessed and served, Thanks goes to God because it was given by the Spirit. And there are varieties of service, different things that we do, ways that we love and serve one another. But it's the same Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. We do different things. But it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And so you see, it's the power that comes from God in these things. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. For the common good. In other words, these gifts are given not so we can boast in them. Not so we can say, I have this gift and you don't. It's so that others can be helped. They're given for the common good. That is to say, they're gifts given so that they can be given. <laughs> gifts given so that they can be shared. We're in the business as Christians of doing that which is otherwise tacky. We're in the business of regifting. Right? We give that which we've been given. This word gift, these passages, some of you have heard this Greek word. You may not even know it was a Greek word. You may have seen it in a headline in Newsweek. But it's the word charisma. And that is developed from another word that we're familiar with which is the word charis. And the word charis means grace. That is, that which is a gift, that which is given, that which is received, that which didn't originate with us ourselves, that which we didn't earn, but it was a gift given. And so a charisma is a manifestation of the fact that we've been given grace. It's a result of having been given grace. It's what comes through someone who's been given Grace. And so, we give because we've been given. Verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, uh, miracles, prophecies, speaking in tongues, interpretations and so forth and so on. Verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually As he wills. That is these gifts are given. By the Holy Spirit. The sovereign one. As he desires to give them. Thus their gifts not earned. They come from him. Oh you say they may match your personality. They may they may not. It appears as if. This gift that Timothy has been given, that is to be an evangelist perhaps, that is to be a pastor perhaps, that is to be a teacher in the church, didn't match his personality at all. I relate to that better than you could ever imagine. So Timothy had to overcome, if you will, his personality, his inclinations. That's why... I think Paul had to say, stoke it, fan it into flame, rekindle it, don't neglect it. Because it's so contrary to you and your own personality that you're liable to think this can't be true. And so the question then is, why is it that Timothy had to do this work of fanning it into flame? Why isn't simply the presence of the gift sufficient to motivate someone, to inspire someone, to use it? Well, I think we can discern from this that simply the presence of a gift of the Holy Spirit in a person's life isn't sufficient in and of itself to get us to use it. It isn't that simply, oh, once I know my gift, I'm home free. It's interesting to me. I can say these kinds of things. The older you get, you say things like I'm about to say. In the 70s and in the 80s, there's a great move, and this wasn't a bad move, by the way. I'm not being critical. I'm just observing. There's a great move for people to find their gifts. And the reason that church people then desire to find their gifts at least in the beginning of that was so that hopefully they could better serve in the body of christ so if you knew how you were gifted and that opportunity arose then you could just jump right in and do it and churches of course had a great motivation for people to find their gifts because, on the, because we're so tired of putting square pegs into round holes in the church so that if we could only find round pegs and round holes, that would be great. However, there were some unintended consequences with this great move, I think. And this is my editorializing, so this isn't the word of God. You don't have to buy this. I'm not necessarily being prophetic here. But think about it. Unintended consequence of that, knowing the sinners that we are, is that sometimes we want to be able to find out our gifts so we can say no to the things that aren't our gift. And sometimes we want to find our gift so that it can be a good excuse for saying, you've got to receive this from me because this is my gift. So if I'm a prophet, hear this word. And I get to say it well, because I'm a prophet, All right? And so, so that kind of notion there. But, but also perhaps a misunderstanding in our own mind to think that if I only knew what my gift was then I would be successful in my ministry, then it would be easy uh, then uh, all would be well because I'm in my area of giftedness and I'd be completely satisfied we had a tendency to equate giftedness by the Holy Spirit in the same way that we say something like Michael Jordan is gifted to play basketball And we all want to be gifted like that because what we think is that if we're as gifted in ministry as Michael Jordan is in basketball, we'll be spectacular. The problem is nobody knew how hard Michael Jordan worked, number one, (laughs) behind the scenes. (laughs) How painful it was to be that gifted and that good. But also, Nobody looked at the life of Paul, this gifted apostle, and saw that life wasn't easy. Saw that he was rejected by his friends. Saw that he often had to defend his own giftedness, his own apostleship. Read through the book, especially the letter of 2 Corinthians, you find Paul defending himself all the time against those who looked better than he did and were better received than him but he's the one who had been called and he's the one with the message and how humbling that was in his own life to be to have to do that. And and how even as he talks about to writes to Timothy, he said, So and so just rejected me. They they never come anymore. They 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 they're ashamed of my bonds, of my chains. And so to see the difficult life that Paul lived, it didn't always feel successful. He didn't always feel confident, if you will. He didn't always feel this great power of the spirit in him. He was discouraged as well. In the midst of all of this, it doesn't make it easy just because we know what the gift that we have Uh, is and all of that and plus then churches began to engineer ministry by saying you're gifted at this do this you're gifted at this do this you're gifted at this do this and so we figured if we could do that then we could engineer this ministry and any of us knows who are involved in any organization whether it be our family whether it be in the relationships of friendships or whatever it is that you just, just it's just messy ministry is messy that's if I ever got a tattoo that's what it would say uh, ministry is messy because uh, it is, right? Um, it's not easy to engineer. Even if you think you're a round hole, a round peg and a round hole, it, you still feel like you're not working. That's just life. And so, you see, just knowing the gift isn't enough. There's something more than that that's important. In fact, it may be. That knowing the gift particularly is less important than all the other things. And so Paul writes to Timothy. says, Timothy, fan this into flame. And you say, well, how do you do that? How do you fan a gift of the Holy Spirit in such a way uh, that it bursts into flame? That is, that it's, it's actually working. And the answer is, just like everything else, you foster, we foster faith. Galatians chapter 5. End of verse six it says that all that matters is faith working through love. And we speak of faith. Obviously, for us, we're always talking about faith in Jesus. It's will be faith in faith, not in believing something and thus it will be true and all of that. But believing in Jesus, this tangible object, this one who is and who has done something and who rules and reigns. We're believing him. And so we say we have faith in Jesus. What we're saying is that we're believing that all that is true about him and all that he did and all that he promises are really true. And it's faith because we haven't seen the fullness of that. We haven't seen the fullness of that. We're, we're believing that our sins are forgiven on the basis of who jesus is and what he did now it's reasonable to believe that especially as we start with the book of genesis and work our way through the old testament as it points to jesus and we see jesus arriving on the scene as as as, 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 as john the baptist says the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world and so when he's called the lamb of god you go, Poof! that connects me with all these other lambs that have come up through that I've been reading about since Genesis I wondered what I was reading about them well here's the Lamb of God that all those other lambs pointed to and so he comes to do what those lambs pointed to which bring forgiveness of sins the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and, and then we see his life and all of that and, and his death and his resurrection that announces who he was so, so there's reason to think about yes okay I can trust him but it's still by faith we still don't see it faith implies always that we're convinced that something is true that we haven't really seen all the way yet. But we're trusting that faith. We're trusting that it really is true. It's reasonable should be, isn't a leap into faith in that sense? It's so like nobody in their right mind. I remember the old television show. Oh, this dates me. Although Nickelodeon is great now all these kids watch these things and they think it's new but remember there was an old show called All in the Family All in the Family? Something in the Family Archie Bunker was the key guy and he says faith is believing what no one in their right mind would believe <laughs> that isn't true at all that's stupidity faith is believing that which is reasonable to believe you see? and it's reasonable as we get to know Jesus To believe, to trust him. So that's faith. But Paul's building faith here in Timothy. Because there's something that Timothy doesn't feel. There's something that Timothy doesn't see. And what he doesn't feel and what he doesn't see is that the Spirit of God is in him. And the Spirit of God has gifted him. And the Spirit of God has called him in that circumstance, in that situation, to love this church in Ephesus in such a way that they'll grow up and become mature ones. And that may mean the hard work of dealing with false teachers. That may deal with the hard work of overcoming his own personality of timidness. And confronting and loving and inserting himself in various places. But still, you see. He doesn't see it. He doesn't feel it. Just knowing this gift and and all of it, and knowing that the Holy Spirit is with us, it doesn't make us feel it. And so he has to live by faith. And so what Paul does to increase his faith is to renew his mind. We're transformed, the principle of Scripture is, by the renewing of our minds, by hearing that which is true. That's why when we come together, we speak the truth in love, meaning we keep the truth in front of us. No matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel. Sometimes we shout that truth because it's, 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 it's so wonderful, you can't help but shout it. Other times we whisper it in the lives of people because, because they're going through very difficult things. So when someone goes through a difficult thing, a loss, a great discouragement, or they're discouraged or depressed, we don't come into their lives and scream, isn't God great? We come into their lives and say, God is with He really loves you and cares for you, and he's at work. But whatever it is, you see, we we must speak the truth. So he speaks the truth. And so he speaks the truth to Timothy, and he says, Listen, Timothy, I know what it looks like. I know how you feel. But God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. See, that's what he feels, Timothy. He feels fear. Paul knows that. He knows his son in the faith. We both love and hate people who know us that well. They can walk into our lives and say precisely that which is true and that which we don't want to hear. But he says to him, Timothy, I know you. I know what you're feeling. It's fear, and and that isn't an unreasonable fear. I mean, think about it. Timothy's mentor is Paul. He's in prison for this very gospel that Timothy is supposed to take to the world. And so Paul says, don't be afraid. What? If they do to me what they did to you, they'll stone me. They'll starve me. They'll leave me for dead. My friends will desert me. I'll be shipwrecked. I'll be imprisoned. And Paul says, "Ah, I know. (laughs) But but, but really, don't be afraid. Right? I'm in the midst of these very competent teachers. They're brilliant. They're smarter than I am. They know more than I do. They're more articulate. They're more charismatic. Everybody flocks to them. They're so confident when they teach. I know what they're teaching is wrong, but I feel completely unable to, to, to confront them and to deal with them. Paul says, I know. That's the story of my life. How do you think I felt when I was in Athens and these great philosophers were talking all kinds of things and I came to tell them that there was one whom they hadn't seen and couldn't see and he was going to be the judge of them all and that he had been raised from the dead. They thought I was crazy. I know. Listen, he hasn't given us a spirit of fear but he's given us a spirit of power. And I think Timothy would have heard those words and go, yeah, right. I don't feel powerful in the midst of this situation. That's why it's by faith. He said, this is really the truth. You've been given a spirit of power because Paul would be able to say, listen, there's a principle I learned. I learned it because you see, no young man believes what I'm about to say. But there's a principle that Paul learned. He learned, number one, he could do all things through Christ who strengthened Him. And this because he learned that power is perfected in weakness. 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12, this incident, Paul had been given by God a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was, whether it was physical, whether it was persecution from the outside, whatever it is, something. He calls it a messenger from Satan to humble him. It's a thorn in the flesh. And Paul learned by this thorn in the flesh that power is perfected in weakness. Verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul had received all these great revelations that could make him conceited. He said, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, how can that be like this? When we feel strong, we think we're able and thus we do not cast ourselves upon God. We do not live dependent upon him. But when we know that we're really weak, Then we turn to him and we cast our cares upon him. And then, as the scripture says, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And so you see, Paul's weakness caused him to call upon God. And God says, here's my grace, I will help you. I'm not going to remove the thorn because that's the thing that keeps reminding you that you're weak. Now, God doesn't, shouldn't have to give us things to make us feel our weakness. Because the truth of the matter is, we are weak. This isn't some game he plays. Oh, you're feeling too strong today. I'll shoot you in the kneecap. He shouldn't have to do that. If we know life, we should know weakness. Because we're the creature. Can you take a breath? Without God supplying? No. But we think we can because we breathe all the time. But become short of breath. What do you do? Oh God, help me. Oh yeah. You're right. Now you know that I'm the one who supplies breath. Okay, good. So, when we're weak, we're actually strong. Why? Because it's then we're dependent. And then he says, It doesn't give you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love. And that's the point, you see. The point, you see, is that we must love. It isn't so much about the gift. It's about whether or not we love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We know this passage. People mention 1 Corinthians 13. You think you're at a wedding because it's going to be about love, right? That's the love passage. What precedes 1 Corinthians chapter 13, oddly enough, is 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 is this discussion of gifts. And it ends with Paul saying this, verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts, whatever that is. We don't need to get into that right now. And he says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. That is a more excellent way than having the higher gifts. Think about the best gift that I can, there's a better thing than that. What's that? He says, love. See, the question shouldn't be, what's my gift? The question should be, do I love? For instance, when we want to have people teach our children in Sunday school, the question isn't, are you gifted to teach children, but do you love them? When we want people to help the poor, it isn't, are you gifted to do this, or do you love them? You might be able, you might be really good at it, but if you don't love them, it doesn't mean deadly squad. I could give you the Greek for diddly squat, but it's a long word. Right? It just doesn't mean anything. So that's the point. I shouldn't be after myself. What's my gift? What's my gift? What's my gift? I should be after myself. Do I love? Do I love? Do I love? And it might be at this point, Timothy would say, I don't think I do. And Paul would say, yes, you do. (laughs) You've been given a spirit of love. No, love. And you've been given a spirit of sound-mindedness, so you can evaluate these things. Literally, it means to be be clear-headed. I think of Paul, who was actually beheaded, tradition tells us. And I think Paul would say, we've been given a spirit of clear-headedness even when we're being beheaded, because we know what's going on as we see it because God has made us wise. I don't know where you are in life and the context of your life what God has called you to specifically but the truth of the matter is just like Timothy he's gifted us in various ways. He hasn't gifted all of us like he's gifted Timothy or as Paul was gifted and so forth. Some of us have various kinds of gifts to be involved in people's lives to serve them but the big question is do I know who I am? I know it's fearful. I know we have to step out. I know there are things we don't want to do. But the question really is, do we understand the power of God that he's given us? Do we understand the love that he's given us for one another? And do we really love each other? And let's think that through and what that means. As a kid, I was always fascinated with the miracles of Jesus, especially when he fed the 5,000. Really, it was more than that. The scripture says 5,000 men. It could have been 10,000. If each of the guys had a date, that would be 10,000. And I suppose it's just one of those known miracles of Jesus. All these people following Jesus, hearing him teach, they'd been with him a while. The disciples said, they're hungry. Let's send them away. Jesus said, what do we have? You get the rolling of the eyes. Don't you? Well, the disciples of Jesus said, well, there's a kid here. He's got five pieces of bread and two little fish. His mom packed for him for lunch. She said, bring it to me. I suppose I always wondered, first of all, what it would have been like with a little boy. Thinking, what a cool story to tell mom when I get home. You know, most productive lunch I ever had. But also maybe how scary it was to give it up. I don't know. But then the disciples I wonder well, what it would like to be them. You look at these five loaves, two fish, thousands of people thinking, Jesus, you know, I don't know about this. What are you thinking? Sometimes I wonder, with me being called to be a husband, to be called to be a father, to be called to be a friend, to be called to share Jesus with people, to be called to live in love with people. And I look at myself in the mirror and I look at what needs to be done and I think, God, what are you thinking? When Jesus took that bread. The scripture says, especially in Matthew, it's very specific, Matthew more so a bit than the others and how it's laid out. But, but but, 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 Jesus, in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew says it went like this. Jesus prayed, took the bread, broke it and he gave it to his disciples and they gave it to the people. Could you imagine what it would have been like to be one of those disciples? There you are. Let's say there were twelve thousand people, just to make it easy, the math, and there were so twelve of us, so we each get a thousand. Um, or even if it was five hundred, there you got your group, and you just got one twelfth of five loaves and two fish. Jesus would have to say, "No, don't be afraid." I know it's overwhelming, but I'm the one who gave it to you. Give it a whirl. What would you do? So you go out. Here's what I would do. I'd mush it up. (laughs) And I'd say, okay, he's going to make everybody get full on one crumb each. Finally, after a while, you do this, and your hands are trembling. You're apologizing. You feel really weak in the midst of this. And you say, don't look at me, look at him. And then you go after the first row and you haven't given any away yet. And so you go back and do it again and go again. And you get the sense that they just kept giving and it just kept coming. And at the end of the day, you know the story, 12 basketfuls left over. You could build a whole theology on that, right? Uh, Don't, by the way. But you could, but you might want to, but don't. But the point is, that's sort of what it's like, isn't it? He says, I've gifted you, church, to guard the gospel, to suffer for it, to live in it, to preach it, to teach it, to love one another. And you feel weak and afraid. You don't think you can do that. But you can. Because I've given you a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind to do it. Don't be afraid. Do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me and for us that we really would believe this and we really would love each other and to love others. That we feel weak, completely unable. That your power would be perfected in our weakness. And that we would step out in love and see you at work knowing there'll be times of frustration, knowing that it won't be easy, knowing that it'll be costly, knowing that we'll sacrifice, knowing that suffering may come, knowing that discouragement may come. But still, God, to trust you so that at the end of the day, people don't look at us, they look at you and say, wow, Jesus is great. So please, I pray that you would help us to love. Father, we pray for those who are going through difficulties, even today, as many are, and, and, and I don't even know all the stories, but God, I pray that you would help us. God, I pray for Rick and those guys on this camping trip this weekend in Colorado, that their time would be great, keep them safe, but may they find you in the scriptures there and in their relationships with love, of love with each other in their wonderful view of the mountains. Father, we pray for Justin Heim and his family on the death of Justin's dad, that you would be with them and give them grace. That you would be with us, Father, as this semester begins, as we have opportunities to share with more people, as we teach set classes, and as we gather together to pray, that your Spirit would be among us in such a way that as we come together, that we would re-gift, that we would give to each other, and that we would all turn and give thanks to you. Father, this I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that classes will begin in about five or eight minutes, something like that. So please make your way to those those classes. Don't be late, as I've made you to be. And uh, you can grab a cup of coffee on your way. There should be coffee in the old section as well. So but you might want to grab some because I don't know that you should trust me on that one. And please receive this now as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And together let us sing. To the King who is coming to reign Glory to Jesus, the Lamb that was slain